Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. All right, we're going to get started here. You know, uh, we, we uh, are starting a new series today, and I want to start out by telling you a story. How many of you know the author Lee Strobel? How many of you know that name? Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for a Creator. It's a, new, uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. I think it's a really good book if you're trying to understand whether or not God exists. But in his story, he recounts, or in his book, he recounts this story of, uh, of, of a legal case in the state of Indiana back in 1980. Uh, in 1978, uh, the, there were three teenage girls who were uh, driving in a Ford Pinto. How many of you know what a Ford Pinto is? I have a picture, Ford Pinto, right? And, and there was some uh, suspicion that the Ford Pinto was pr- prone to uh, explosion if it was hit in the back. Any of you know about that? You guys know about the, the fact that the Ford Pinto was prone to explosion? Well, in 1978, in the state of Indiana on a highway, these three girls were hit in the back by a van, the car exploded, and eventually the three girls lost their life. Uh, a case was brought against the Ford Motor Company saying, you knew that this was a hazard. You should be held liable for their death. You, were recklessly, uh, you recklessly produced the car. And so uh, the case went to trial, and, and as the, the trial proceeded, the prosecution brought up witness after witness to say the car was, was moving at the same speed as the van. So the impact, I mean, those of you who are physics, understand physics, right? The impact would not have been a lot if we're going the same direction, same speed. And so that was the case that the prosecution was making. It was just a bump, and the bump caused the explosion. The defense said, well, that wasn't the case. The car was stopped on the highway. It was sitting still. The van hit it at 50 miles an hour. Any car of that size hit in the rear at 50 miles an hour when it was stopped would would be subject to fatalities. And so the case went to trial, and during the trial, the prosecution brought up a a number of witnesses who all testified, saying, yeah, the car was moving, except for that their their testimonies were were not consistent. And in cross-examination, a lot of times their testimonies were a little bit wavery. And so eventually the prosecution brought up their their key witness, and this was the 21-year-old driver of the van. This 21-year-old driver of the van had... Uh, five convictions, five traffic convictions over the previous three years, but got on the stand and said, the car in front of me was going about 15 miles an hour when I hit it. It seemed as though the prosecution had won the case. And yet in a few days later, the whole thing turned upside down and the defense had won the case. Now, how did it happen? How is it that the defense in this seemingly slam dunk case ended up winning? Was it sort of like a, a, a judicial loophole? Did they, did they pull a string? Or they, there was some procedural violation? No. What actually happened is the defense attorney started doing some detective work and started searching for evidence to prove his case, to prove his case that the Pinto was stopped on the road. And everybody had been looking for evidence, and yet somehow they had overlooked two key pieces of evidence. The first key piece of evidence that was overlooked 
was the fact that the driver, when he was treated by a doctor at the hospital, immediately after the accident, said to the doctor, the car was stopped. How did they miss that? The other piece of evidence was that two hospital workers who treated the driver of the Pinto before she finally passed away heard her say, I was stopped. And so with these two key pieces of evidence, the defense flipped the case because the defense attorney had gone about looking for evidence and honestly assessing evidence to see where it would lead. This is how we make sense of a lot of things in our, in our legal system, right? Like every legal case or most legal cases, the prosecution and the defense attorneys, neither one were there. The jury was not there. And so they can't say, well, I saw it with my own eyes. That's the witnesses. And yet over and over in courtrooms all over this country, verdicts come about based on evidence. We're beginning this series today called Asking for a Friend, and you guys will know that we asked for a lot of questions, and, and an, I, you guys did not disappoint when you submitted questions. There were lots of questions, and if you have looked at the list of topics we're going to talk about, you guys didn't hold back either. You had, you had serious, serious questions. But what we've, we've got seven weeks, and we're going to look at these questions one by one. Now, because you submitted so many questions... And we want to answer as many of them as we can. Some of them we put together as questions. Some of them are in their original form. This is one of the ones that was in its original form. The question we're going to look at today as we begin this series is, how do we know God is real? How do we know God is real? Would you pray with me and then we're going to turn to Scripture? And so, Lord, I do just welcome you into this space. And, Lord, I confess that... Uh, apart from your revelation, uh, that nothing that I say today will matter. That nothing that I would present uh, today, apart from you putting your spirit in it, Lord, that, that nothing would have impact. And so, Lord, I do pray that this would be a message that does connect. God, that your word would come through, that your revelation would come through. Lord, I pray that you would grant gifts of faith. Or would you draw us to yourself? Reveal yourself. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to sort of look at a little bit of Scripture. There's a very foundational question that's sort of assumed in Christian faith. And that question is, does God exist? And in Christian faith, we sort of make the assumption that the answer to that question is yes. Um, but what I want to say at the outset is that there's no mic drop moment when it comes to the existence of God. There's no clear cut, this is absolutely guaranteed proof that God exists. But much like the, the, the legal case that I described at the beginning, the existence of God is something that we come to based on a summation of the evidence. That there's evidence all over the place that points to the existence of God. And if we take an honest look at a summation of all the evidence, we come to the conclusion that it's more likely than not that God exists. But there's no slam dunk. If there was, this would not be a question that people submitted. But this is a question that a lot of people wrestle with. The way we come to this understanding is by looking at all the evidence. You know, the Bible speaks about the evidence 
all around us for the existence of God. Psalm 19 says this. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. You know, there's, the Bible points to this reality that all over creation, that God has put his fingerprints in creation. That as we look around at the, at the, the created world around us, there are things we can pay attention to where we see the fingerprints of God, where we see God's handiwork. And the, the, this particular passage talks about a little bit about uh, the, the sunrise and the sunset, the cycle of the sun. Every, uh, everyone pays attention to the fact that the sun comes up and the sun goes down, right? Everyone notices this, and maybe you get to a point where you don't notice it. But the, the process by which the sun comes up, the sun goes down, and we discover God's existence through things like this is what theologians call natural theology. Natural theology is discovering the existence of God by the observable world around us. Every time Jerry and I go to a beach, every time we go on vacation, we go to the beach on the East Coast, any beach that points east... At some point during the week, Jerry wants to get up at an ungodly hour. God is asleep, and so am I. And she wants to get up before the sun comes up and go to the beach and watch the sunrise over the water. Have you ever done this? We stand on the beach, and it's dark, and the sun comes up. And the sunrise stirs something in you, right? There's something majestic about watching the sun come up over the water, and we would call this thing beauty or majesty, that something inside of us gets stirred that we call beauty, and beauty points to something. Beauty points to potentially the existence of something beyond itself. What makes something beautiful? What is it about beauty that, that we can take note of it? You know, if you've ever taken a science class, what you've probably learned in science, is that essentially the sunrise happens because the earth spins and the sun stands still. And so every time the earth spins, you get a sunrise and you get a sunset. Seemingly, it's not all that majestic, and yet standing on the beach watching the sun come up is a majestic experience. I, I don't know, I've, some of you know that I have uh, used to fly airplanes for a living uh, up until this year, and when I would fly airplanes, it was stunning to be flying at night and watch the sun come up from an airplane. Like seeing the sunrise before the people directly below you see it. I mean, an absolutely majestic experience. And so you would take off at night and it would be dark. And then before the sun gets to the horizon, there's this twilight that starts to appear on the horizon. And something inside of you gets stirred. But I don't know if you've ever tried to take a picture of a sunrise it never turns out well. I got a picture I want to show you. This is a picture of a sunrise while you're flying. You can even see the date, 2008. It's been a little while. 
they never really capture the experience that you have. Now, some might just say, well, you're just bad at taking pictures. And that could be. It may just be that I'm bad. But I have never seen someone take a picture of a sunrise from an airplane and say, yeah, that that captures the thing that I experienced when I saw it. There's just something about seeing it that stirs something inside of you. And yet every one of these pictures that I've looked at, every time I watched somebody, I would fly with them and they would see it and they would go to take a picture. And I'm like, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but that's not going to turn out. You should just soak it in and enjoy it, right? There's something about beauty that resists being captured. Every one of these pictures disappoints because the thing that inspired it inside of me, that stirred inside of me, this beauty, this wonder, this majesty, doesn't get stirred again when I see the picture. There's something about beauty that resists being captured. It's as as if beauty is sort of fleeting, right? And that things are beautiful for a moment, but it's not eternal. And the experience that we have seems to be a pointer to the possibility that they might exist for a longer time. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that you experience something as beautiful and yet it fades points to the fact that there may be something on the other side of that that offers to you this majesty, this beauty that you have experienced, but it's only a signpost. It only points ahead to what may possibly be eternal. It's a pointer that there may be someone beyond what we currently experience who has left in creation fingerprints that point to himself. Verse 1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. It's not just the beauty, though, of the world around us that points to the existence of God. It's the fact that the world around us exists. Have you ever thought about the fact that the world around us exists, which means it has to have been created by someone? It had to have been created on purpose? The atheistic uh, perspective is that this all happened by chance, that every one of these things happened just by just chance. There's no purpose. Nobody created it. But has that ever worked in your life? Just things just show up. You didn't have to make them happen. Has it ever happened? My house needs a lot of work still. And I keep trying to put that principle into place and say, if I just sit here long enough, chance says the hole in the wall will get fixed. Right? I mean, what if we took that perspective on, on, on the back end of the building? Just chance that somehow it will dry itself out and we'll be all put together Have you ever thought about the fact that because the things in this world exist, it points to somebody made them happen? I don't think we think about that a lot of times when we pay attention to the world around us. We just sort of go about. And I want you to consider, because things exist, consider how finely tuned things have to be in order for life to exist. Like, think about it for a minute. Scientists have told us that there are a set of constants all around uh, the universe that have to be within this minuscule window for life to exist in the universe. The constants could be changed outside of that window, which would create universes, but nobody would be there to observe them. 
The fact that you are here to observe the universe around you and to capture the beauty of things in the universe around you points to some sort of design. There's a, uh, I want to kind of read some of these to you, and if you're not scientifically minded, maybe they just sail over your head, and, and that's okay, right? Some of you will, will geek out on these like I did. For example, if the strong nuclear force were slightly more powerful, then there would be no hydrogen, which is an essential element of life, just slightly. I mean, we're talking minuscule. Like, you guys know what exponents are, right? It's how many zeros you put after a number. It's like a ridiculous number of zeros. If it was slightly weaker, the hydrogen would be the only element in existence, also meaning that we couldn't have life. If the weak nuclear force were slightly different, then either there would be not enough helium to generate heavy elements in stars, or stars would burn out too quickly. And supernova explosions could not scatter heavy elements across the Earth, or across the universe. Just the gravitational constant that exists in all of the universe is what makes life possible. And it's, a, it's, it's a one part in 10 to the 60th power. It's a ridiculous number of zeros. You guys know Stephen Hawking? You know that name? Stephen Hawking was a, a, a physicist, also an atheist. Here's what he said about the constants in the universe. He said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. He goes on to say, if the electric charge of the electron had only been slightly different, stars would not have been able to burn uh, hydrogen and helium or else they would have not exploded. He says this, and I think this is telling. It seems clear that there are relatively few ranges of values for the numbers that would allow for development of any form of intelligent life. Most sets of values would give rise to universes that, although they might be very beautiful, would contain no one able to wonder at that beauty. This is someone who says God doesn't exist, and yet says there's something so finely tuned to make it possible that you could experience wonder and experience beauty in creation. Like I said before, you can't necessarily prove that God exists. But you can start to take a look at these bits of evidence, these, these drops in the bucket, and eventually it tips. But there's something else I want to, to point to that I think we all experience that points to the existence of God. How many of you have ever watched a kid say, that's not fair? Right? Nobody? Like, I was going to say, Pete, you teach kids. I'm sure that that's like every day. That's not fair, right? You don't have to raise kids for very long before they arrive at the point where they say, that's not fair. It's a constant daily experience in my house. But that's not fair. And my kids have never been trained in the American legal system. So how do they even know? But it seems like something inside of kids that knows that there's something about justice, there's something about fairness. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who was sexually abused as a child and have watched the fallout and the ways it has impacted them as an adult, there's something that screams inside of you, that's not fair. That's not fair. If you take account of like, 
the, the accounts of genocide, just regular people trying to live life who were killed. You think about like the Holocaust. And there's something about us internally that says that's not fair. There's something wrong about that. Who says it's wrong? And where do you get the sense that anything would be wrong or unfair? Who are you to say it's not fair? You see, if there's no God, if there's no, no higher authority, nothing that says this is how things ought to be, who has created with the world with purpose and with intent, then there's no justification ever to tell someone that they're wrong. There's no justification ever to say that's not fair. If there's, no, if there's no, uh, no higher authority, what we end up with is the strong survive and impose their will on the weak, right? And who can ever say that that's wrong? Nobody. But there's something inside of us that cries out for things to be made right. Where does that impulse come from? Oh, we could keep going on and on and on about this, right? I could keep pointing to little evidences that just drop into the bucket of, yes, there must be a God. We could keep talking about these things over and over and over, but at some point, at some point I have to say, I have enough evidence to say more likely than not, God does exist. I don't know for sure, I can't prove it, but there's enough evidence to say it's a rational conclusion to decide that God exists. And if that's a thing where you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to make that decision. Listen, let me let you off the hook just a little bit. All of those evidences don't necessarily point you to the Christian God, the God of the Bible. All they tell you is that there is a God outside of creation. There likely is something, some force, some person, someone behind all of this. But it's not a slam dunk that you, okay, well, I guess I have to become a Christian. That's not actually what, what it proves to you. Natural theology has a limit. Natural theology can point us to the existence of a God, but it can't tell us what kind of God that is. Natural theology can't tell us what the desires of that God is. Natural theology can't tell us what the character of that God is. Or what purposes that God has for this creation, all it tells you is that there's a creation that points to a creator. You see, the only way we can know the character of this God is if this God chooses to reveal him or herself to us. It's the only way you can know. And I don't know if, you, if you've ever paid attention to the world religions, like all across the world, People have come up with the idea of God, God or gods. There's religions all around the world, but they all have some absence of understanding about who this God actually is. And it's a genuine frustration for lots of people. I've heard people say, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he just tell us? If God is real, why, why doesn't he just show himself? Why can't he just, you know, write it in the sky? You know, just get a big skywriter and say, I am God. And then, then I would know. And it's a struggle. If you're, ever, if you're wrestling with this as a struggle, you know it's, it's a deep struggle. It's like I can't know for sure. 
But here's the deal. The same challenge exists all the way around the world with every God. Is how come this God won't reveal or speak to me? But the good news is that the God of the Bible has done exactly that. See, the God of the Bible seems to want you to know who he is. No other God in history has done that. The God of the Bible said, I want you to know me, and I want you to know my character and my my heart and my, my purposes. Jesus says this about himself in John chapter 14. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you know what God is like. I'm the representation of God on this earth. Paul, when writing to the Colossian church, says this about Jesus in Colossians 1. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, what these verses are saying is that God was not content just to create the world and let it go. And hope maybe you would discover that God existed. But God wanted you to know him. God wanted you to know his heart. God wanted you to know his character. God wanted you to be able to be in relationship with him. And what the Bible says is if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. We can have all kinds of ideas about what God is like, but if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. That's what God's like. God is like Jesus. The Bible says that the reason Jesus came was because God loves you deeply. You see, if you don't have this revelation of God in Jesus, it's a fearful thing. Because if you don't know the heart or the character of God, does God want to get me? Am I supposed to be afraid of God? Am I supposed to be terrified of God? It seems like God might be powerful enough to do something to me. But the Bible says God loves you. And the way that you can know he loves you, John 3 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And there's really good evidence that God exists. And because of Jesus, we know the heart and the character of that God. That God wants you to have abundant eternal life. That God wants you to participate in relationship with him in making the world new. This is what we discover about who God is from Scripture. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.